0: Revelation chapter thirteen. Are you ready to get fed with a fire hose today? <clears throat> All right. Revelation chapter thirteen is where we are at. Uh, by way of introduction, just a short introduction. I, I just, I guess, I would say this. I got a buddy named Dave, and uh, and he used to. He's in the ministry now, but back in the mid nineties, he he uh, had a, a loan, a mortgage loan business, and then he was licensed in over thirty states. Um, and they would fund these, these uh, loans all over the place. Well, he gets a call one day from a bank in the Midwest, and he's got this nervous teller on the other end of the line, and she's telling him she's having problems processing his check. Well, he, he had, through discussion with her, comes to find out that this wasn't a check that they had issued. This is one of their advertisements. You ever get one of those checks in the mail? It's actually an advertisement? Well, somebody actually took this thing into the bank, and this teller, teller cashed it. Yeah. It's like a $20,000 check and now she's trying to process this thing and he's trying to walk this poor gal through the fact that she just gave 20 grand away and and you know the the micker numbers aren't on the check. He says, "Can you see the red light, red writing that actually says this is not a check and the realization just settles in that she's made a horrible mistake. I made a horrible mistake, right? And uh yeah Moral of the story is you got to watch out for counterfeiters. And that's what we see here in Revelation chapter 13, just over and over again, examples of how Satan is a counterfeiter, he's a fraud, and this, this theme just shows up over and over and over again. See, Revelation 12 and 13, they introduce us to several key figures in the book of Revelation. And here in chapter 13, this is the money chapter of prophecy. Because here is when we get introduced to the Antichrist, the future world dictator known as the beast, and we're going to get introduced to the false prophet, who is his minister of propaganda, described as another beast, and, uh, and as we're going to see today, they together are counterfeiters of the things of God. This is also the famous chapter where the 666 is, is put in. We're going to look at all of that stuff, uh, look at possibilities for who is 666. Man, stay tuned, all right? So with that in mind, Revelation 13, verse 1, then I stood on the sand of the sea, And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. And now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a dragon, or I'm sorry, mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now, Uh, Then I stood on the sand of the sea. Most translations, the better translations, say then he stood on the sand of the sea. Um, This is really a continuation of the last verse of chapter 12 where we see that Satan was kicked out of heaven. He came down to earth to make war against God's people. And so it's Satan who stands on the sand of the sea and John says, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Now, whether you say I stood or whether he stood doesn't change the meaning of what we're reading here at all. Satan stood on the sand of the sea. John sees a beast rising up out of the sea. Now, lots to unpack here. Uh, When we get to Revelation chapter 17, what we're going to find out there is it explains that the sea represents the sea of humanity. And geographically, uh, where John is looking here is uh, he's he's looking at the multitude of people that live around the Mediterranean Sea. And, And what happens here, the idea is that the beast is a man who rises to power out of the sea of humanity in that region. Now, Having said that, what you need to understand here, as we read through these verses and as we continue on, and certainly as it talks about um, how uh you know his his throne and and all in the in, in the empire there that that he leads, the text describes Antichrist the man and the the empire of the Antichrist interchangeably, and it's not unlike you know we would describe. Adolf Hitler, the man, and we would also talk about the Third Reich, which is interchangeable in our discussion of who Hitler is. It's kind of the same thing here. And so the the text is using these terms interchangeably. And so John describes this beast as having seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns. He's not describing the man here. He's describing the composition of the beast's empire. And so the beast's empire... Described here as having (coughs) seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns. Now, again, when we get to Revelation 17, it tells us there that the seven heads represent seven kings and also seven mountains. The seven kings correspond with seven world empires. And here's what John's going to tell us in John chapter 17. He describes these empires this way. He says, five of them have fallen. He says, one is, and then he says, one is yet to come. Now, he's talking about world-dominating empires. And as we know history, we look back, we say, well, the five world-dominating empires that have been or that have fallen, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, that make up the five. Then John says, one is. Now, remember, John's writing in his day, the empire that, that was in the present tense, uh, or that is, as he says in the present tense, well, that would be Rome. Now, we know that Rome has fallen, and really didn't fall in terms of being conquered, it just sort of fell apart, but Rome is not currently a ruling empire, but it was in his day, and then when he says the one is yet to come, he's talking about the empire of Antichrist, and so the next world-dominating empire is going to be Antichrist's empire. The seven heads represent the seven kings, which correspond to these seven world empires, but John also says in Revelation 17 in verse 9, which I'll throw on the screen for you, that they represent seven mountains. Here's what he says. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So John here is referencing an image in Revelation chapter 17 of a woman riding a beast sitting on seven Mountains. Now, it's commonly accepted that the woman is symbolic of a religious system, and that the seven mountains is a clear reference to Rome. You see, before the Roman Empire was established, there, it was ruled by a plural monarchy known as the seven kings of Rome. Uh, and for 2,000 years, Rome has been called the city on seven mountains, or the city on seven hills, um, and th- uh, the visions of Daniel 7 and Daniel chapter 2, they also connect the, the beast's end-time government with the Roman Empire. And it's interesting. As I said, Roman Empire never conquered. It just sort of fell apart, just faded away. They didn't hear the song, Better to Burn Out Than to Fade Away. They just sort of faded away. And, and in 1958, actually, the process to revive the Roman Empire... Began. It started up in 1958, and interestingly, it started with a treaty that was known as, the, and is known as, the Treaty of Rome. Maybe you're not aware of it, but it established the European Common Market. And do you know what the European Common Market has morphed into? European Union. European Union is born out of this Treaty of Rome, the European Common Market. Now, the connection between the European Union, the EU... And biblical prophecy are stunning, absolutely stunning. I'm just going to give you a few examples here. You can Google it. I'm not making this stuff up, and it's even more than this. It's fascinating to consider that the connections to to biblical prophecy and the EU are, are blatant. So one example is this. When the EU built their parliament building in France, did you know they built it to replicate the Tower of Babel? Put a, could a shot up here. You have on the right, somebody has made this picture. The right is the actual building, the parliament building. The left is a famous painting of the Tower of Babel. Now you'll notice there at the top left-hand corner of that famous painting how the Tower of Babel was left unfinished. And this is exactly what the architect did of this building. He, he built it to, to replicate this unfinished Tower of Babel. Here's what you need to understand about Babylon that figures very prominently in prophecy. See, Babylon was the seat of the civilization that expressed organized hostility to God. And it started when the descendants of Noah bound together in defiance of God and they built this tower to reach into the heavens and establish their independence from God. you you read about the the building materials that they actually used in the construction of the Tower of Babel, and they were actually waterproof materials. In other words, they were saying, we're going to band band together, we're going to build this thing, and God ain't going to flood us anymore. He's not going to deal with, we're going to build a structure that he can't flood. And so what did God do? He said, well, I'm just going to confuse your language And now he gives them all different kinds of languages and dialects, and what does he do? He disrupts their rebellion by confusing them in that way, and he slows them down. But in the tribulation, what's going to happen is the beast is going to lead a highly organized and powerful rebellion that is inextricably linked to the empires of both Rome and Babylon in prophecy. And so the image of the Tower of Babel linked to the EU is very symbolic. Now, just in case this connection between the EU and Babylon is not clear enough by that building, when this building was commissioned, they also commissioned a poster that would advertise this building. And so this poster right here is the Tower of Babel with these pentagrams encircling it, and look at what they say. Look at what their caption is. Europe, many tongues, one voice. Right? In other words, it is a big thumb in their nose to God saying, yeah, you might have confused our languages, but we're still unified. We're one voice. Right? So, so again, wow. This, this is amazing. Now, As I said earlier, when we get to Revelation 17, we're going to see a woman riding a beast. You guys can just leave that up there for now, build on that. So there's a woman who's riding a beast. And the woman pictures, the the symbolism of this woman is that she she pictures satanic religion and worship that's going to dominate the world during the tribulation period. And in just a glance at a very next verse, or one of the next verses, we're going to in verse four tells us that the people worship the dragon, meaning Satan, and they worship the beast. And so what happens is this woman riding the beast, she, reco- she, she represents satanic religion and worship that's going to dominate during the tribulation period, right? That's important to keep in mind because another remarkable connection between the EU and biblical prophecy is that the symbol of the EU is a woman riding a beast. That's their symbol. It shows up on their coinage, see a woman riding a beast, also, huge statue outside of this building here, right there, woman riding a beast. So, so you, you see these symbols, and there's so many more that, for time's sake, I didn't fit in here. But man, seven heads depicted in verse 1, they, they refer to the fact that Antichrist empire is going to be a revival of the Roman Empire that is an amalgamation of multiple empires rolled into one. And this is further supported by what John describes there in verse 2, which, by the way, matches a vision given to Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 of a leopard and a bear and a lion. They're symbols of the Greek Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire and the Babylonian Empire, these other world-dominating empires. And the picture here is that there's going to be a combining of all the world empires into one massive revival of the Roman Empire, the kingdom of the Antichrist. Now, John also describes the beast empire as having ten horns, and on those ten horns, ten crowns. And, and this represents the accumulative power of the ten world leaders of his day that are going to unite with the beast. And, and again, we also know this from the prophet Daniel. God told Daniel ten horns were ten kings that were going to give power to the beast in the, in the last days, to the, to the final ruling em, em, emperor, or the final, final ruling man governing over these, these things. So we'll address all of this more in Revelation chapter 17. But what you need to understand is that there's going to arise upon the earth in the, the final three and a half years of the tribulation a ten-nation federation. And take note that not only does the beast have the power of the ten-nation federation backing him, but notice there at the end of verse 2 where he gets his power from. He receives his power from Satan himself. It says there, the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now this makes Antichrist the most powerful ruler the fallen world has ever had and will ever have. The most powerful ruler of the fallen world. And this is especially so when God removes the church because right now the church with the presence and working of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers, that's the restraining force that is in the world right now that's counteracting the evil that predominates in the world. And God's going to rapture the church and he's going to take believers up into heaven and when he takes the restraining force of the Holy Spirit away and Satan himself empowers this final world ruler man, it's, he's going to be more powerful than, than the world has ever seen. What I want you to get right now is the picture that's starting to, to emerge here is that Satan is a counterfeiter. How so? Well, first of all, just as Jesus came in the flesh in the likeness of man, well, Satan imitates that here with the beast. The beast rises up out of the sea of mankind, and, and now he comes... In, in In the Satan comes in the likeness of this man now hold that thought, look at verse three, we continue John says and I, and I saw one of his heads, speaking of the beast, one of his heads, as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. now you'll remember I told you at the beginning of this chapter. <clears throat> that Revelation 13 depicts Antichrist and his empire interchangeably. And so the question here is, which one is in view in verse 3? When he says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and essentially resurrected, is he talking about the Antichrist himself, or is he talking about the Antichrist's empire? And, and this is debated. It, it's, it's absolutely debated. Hey, you go, which one is in view here? Some people say, well, this is a reference to a resurrected empire of Rome, that that's what was resurrected, not the man, but the empire. And others say, no, this is a reference to an actual physical resurrection of a man. Here's my answer. My answer is that it's both, sort of. Um, <laughs> the evidence is compelling that the beast presides over a resurrected Roman Empire. And so I'll grant you that. But the use of personal pronouns here, of his and him, these speak of a physical resurrection of a, of a physical being. And then you get to verse 14, which I assure you we will get there this morning. Um, but when we get to verse 14, it introduces the, the false prophet, and the false prophet is demanding that people build and worship an image of the beast. And the reason that he cites that the beast is worthy of worship is he says that he was wounded by a sword and that he lived. Again, personal pronouns there. And the word sword that he uses is a word that's used in reference to an assassin's dagger. And there's this interesting prophecy in Zechariah chapter 11 that suggests that that the Antichrist, the final world ruling leader, is going to suffer an assassination attempt and, and that he's going to suffer that assassination attempt with this exact type of sword and that the net effect is that it's going to leave him blind in one eye and paralyzed in one arm. And so the answer seems to be that it's a reference to both. It's, it's a reference to a revived Roman Empire and it's also a reference to a revived leader. Now, here's the sort of part. It raises a question if this is talking about reviving an actual physical person, well, does Satan have that kind of power to actually raise someone from the dead? And the answer is no. And what there's an interesting clue here in the beginning of verse three. He says, I saw one of his head's as if it had been mortally wounded. Other translations read it this way. They say one of his heads uh, seemed to have a mortal wound. In other words, what happens here? Satan apparently pulls a David Blaine and, and or a Penn and Teller, you know, and he just does this this con job, this this magic trick to make everybody believe that this guy had been mortally wounded. Uh, and raised from the dead. And again, I want you to notice Satan the counterfeiter. Because just as Jesus came in the likeness of man, the beast comes in the likeness of man. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, so also the beast, air quotes, rises from the dead. So so again, you see this counterfeiting, and we're going to see this counterfeiting continue. We're going to see just as Jesus brings praise to the Father, the beast now brings praise to Satan. And just as Jesus came speaking for God, that the beast also is given a mouth to speak. Verse 4. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they, speaking the people of the nations of the earth, they worship the beast, saying, "Who is like the beast, who 's able to make war with him?" and he was given speaking of the of the beast, he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for forty two months that 's three and a half years that''s the second half of the tribulation period. Verse 6, then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And so we see there that they worship the dragon, they worship the beast, and how do they worship him? They say, who is like him, who's able to stand? Now... These are blasphemous words because they're the, the, the same phrasing that is used in the scriptures to ascribe this type of praise to God. I'll give you two examples. Exodus 15:11. There's many examples, but Exodus 15:11 reads this way: Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Again, Isaiah 40. Beginning in verse 18, uh, reads this way, Who To whom <coughs> then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to Him? He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when He will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. So blasphemous words where, you know, we see here, the world fascinated with Antichrist, fascinated with Satan, now they turn and they're worshiping him as God. And this is what Satan has coveted from the very beginning. He wants to be praised as God. Verse Seven we continue it says he was it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him and here 's the qualifier whose names have not been written in the book of life uh, uh, in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation. <laughs> of the world if anyone has an ear let him hear now there's several things to take note of in these verses first of all in verse 7 it tells us that his power is granted to him this is very important in other words nothing takes place without god's consent power is granted to him and what happens is that what is the power it's to make war with the saints and listen to overcome the saints He's empowered to do this. Now, Isaiah 54 promises that no weapon formed against us will prosper. But listen, a few things to understand about that. First of all, we, the church, hey, we won't be overcome by Satan. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. But listen, the church has been taken up into heaven. Now, these are God's children. And so God allows the enemy to, to, to make war against those tribulation saints that are here on the earth that are going to receive Christ after the church has been raptured. God's going to allow the enemy to prevail. But listen, there's a time limit, 42 months, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. And ultimately, the weapon that's formed against them isn't going to prosper. Yes, they're going to be overcome. But listen, when they are overcome, God's going to use it for His purposes. And what is their ultimate hope? It's the same as our ultimate hope. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Nothing happens without God's consent. Next thing here for us to notice here, that there in verse 8, it, it gives the qualifier, that he's going to make this war. Those whose name, you know, against all who dwell on the earth, they're going to worship him, but the people who have not been written in the Lamb's book of life from the, the foundation of the world, they're, those are the ones he's going to slay, that are going to be slain. Now, the key here is in that last part of verse 8. Everyone who's not written in the Lamb's book of life are going to worship him. And it says, the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world. Listen, the idea here is it says that Jesus Christ crucified was not plan B. This wasn't like God went, oh, everybody, the, the, Adam and Eve sinned, and sin has entered. Now what am I going to do to redeem everybody? No, it was from the foundation of the world. This was always planned. It was God's plan. He knew that when he created his creation and when he gave to us the choice, I set before you life and death, blessings and cursings, he knew that we of our free will would choose to rebel. And, and, and so God, from the foundation of the world, listen, he had planned for Jesus Christ all along to suffer and to die for the sins that we would inevitably commit. Paul said this to the Galatians. He said, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Here's what this means. The law, God says, hey, don't do that, do this. And what he knew was that we would say, I'm going to do that, and I don't want to do this. And so he says that that instruction, that law, is there for us to realize. I'm a sinner by nature and by choice. I need a savior. It's it's this realization that Paul makes when he says, that that I want to do, I don't do. And that that I don't want to do, that's what I do. Who's going to save me from this body of death? And Paul answers his own rhetorical question. He says, Jesus is going to save me. And that's what Paul is telling the Galatians here in Galatians chapter 3. He's saying, listen, that's what the law is there for. It's a tutor to show you, well, man, you're messed up. You need a savior. The Savior is Jesus Christ. Well, listen, God knows those who will reject Him, and He knows those who will receive Him. Just as Jesus Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, God knows that we will rebel, and He knows who will rebel. And so that's what this verse is telling us, is that, listen, everybody going to dwell on the, 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 the earth is going to to worship him. And who are those? Those are the ones whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. And it's not like God plays duck, duck, damn, and says, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. You're going to heaven, you're going to hell, just arbitrarily and capriciously. No, what God does is he says, I set before you life and death, blessings and cursings, choose life. And, And he knows that, look... And people, people articulate it this this way. They, they have a, a problem with hell. They say, well, gosh, how could a loving God send people to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. God doesn't want anybody to die. He wants everyone to come to everlasting life, to faith in Jesus Christ. And he desperately wants you to be saved. And he wants you to be saved so much that he gives Jesus Christ to be killed so that you don't have to die. But listen, if you reject that, which is the greatest gift that's ever been given, the greatest rescue effort that's ever been made, if you're out there drowning in the middle of the Atlantic <coughs> and someone throws you, you know, a life ring and you refuse to grab the life ring and you insist on drowning, well then, is that the act of a loving rescuer or is that the act of your individual will and choice? It's the act of your exercise of your will and choice and God's not going to force himself on you. That's not love. God says, love is, I want to rescue you. I've made all the provisions to rescue you, but now the choice is yours. And so what's being said here, and what we have in view, is that there are those that are going to reject Jesus, and because they've rejected Jesus, their name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you go today, well, gosh, is my, written, is my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Well, it absolutely can be. All you have to do is just to believe in Jesus Christ, that he's the Son of God, that he died on the cross for your sins in your place, that he rose again on the third day, conquering Satan's sin and death, and that he offers you today the gift of eternal life. All you have to do is confess that you're a sinner, believe that he's the Savior, and cry out to him and say, be my Lord and Savior. I want to grab that life ring. Hey, your name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. God lives outside of time. He knows the end from the beginning. And so those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life because he knows how their life plays out, well, then they're the ones that are going to be Worshipping the the Antichrist, they're the ones who are in the short term not going to be attacked by Antichrist, but in the long term are going to live outside of a saving faith with him. Then in verse verse 10, another important thing to note, it says, He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience of the faith of the saints. Now, to read this in the New King James, it kind of kind of sounds like you reap what you sow. You know, it kind of sounds like you know if you lead into captivity, well then you're going to go into captivity. If you kill with a the sword, then you're going to go into the sword. That that's not the better translation. Um, the ESV is actually a better translation of this verse. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says, "If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain." Here is a call for the endurance. Uh, and faith of the saints. In other words, what this verse is saying is because God grants the beast power to make war with and overcome the saints, listen, it's going to be a tough time. Some people are going to be taken captive. <coughs> Some people are going to be slain. It's just how it goes. Why? Because God's given the, Satan that power for, for the last three and a half years. And so what this is, is that it's a call for, an in, for endurance to the, to the saints. He's saying, look, this is going to be a tough time. And I'm going to give this guy this power and the ability to have, be victoriously attacking you as Christians. Don't let that cause your faith to wobble. Don't let that cause your faith to be shaken. Listen, this is a call for endurance of the faith of the saints. It's going to be a tough time on earth. That's what he's saying. Now, by the way, we can take that same verse to heart here. Satan won 't overcome and prevail against us, but God will allow trial and testing in our lives, and we can take this verse to heart for ourselves and i don 't know what you 're going through today, but maybe today you're coming on hanging you 're coming here hanging on by a thread, and listen, you need to understand that as god 's child, nothing happens to you that hasn 't crossed his desk if he's allowed this trial to cross your desk, then God has prescribed for you the, the suffering that you're going through, don't lose heart. The Bible says in due season you'll reap if you don't lose heart, okay? So so it's going to be a tough time is the point. Verse 11 as we continue, he says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. Verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And so here, we're introduced now to the false prophet, okay? He is described as another beast, literally another of the same kind, which, by the way, is another counterfeit here because the Holy Spirit is given by God. Jesus says, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. He's, he's known as the paraclete um, and, the, you know, one who comes alongside. And Jesus described him as another of the same kind. He says, I'm going to send you another helper, another of the same kind. So here we have another, you know, uh, counterfeit. In that this, this, this false prophet comes, you know, sort of in the image and picture of the Holy Spirit, right? Another of the same kind. And like Antichrist, another of the same kind, he is a false prophet that is possessed by demons from the abyss. That's what makes him another of the same kind, of like, like uh, the beast. He's possessed also by demons from the abyss, But whereas the beast has ten horns, and horns are symbolic of power, hey, the false prophet only has two horns. He's less powerful than the beast. And notice also that the false prophet is described here as being like a lamb. Like a lamb. Now this tells us that he is a religious leader. Uh, in the sense that lambs are associated in Scripture with religious sacrifices. It's a religious uh, title. But this religious leader, he speaks with the voice of a dragon, the text tells us. Now, this this is very reminiscent of something that Jesus warned us about in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 7.15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. And so what a picture here. And, and again, more evidence that Satan is a counterfeiter. Just as Jesus came in the likeness of man, the beast comes in the likeness of man. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, the beast rises from the dead. Just as Jesus brings uh, <coughs> praise to the Father, the beast brings praise to Satan. Just as Jesus came speaking for God, the beast also is given a mouth to speak And here now we have a picture of the fake trinity. We have, uh, you know, you have a holy trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But what we have here is an evil trinity. We have Satan, we have Antichrist, and now here we have the false prophet. And just as the role of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus and their need for him, what we have here is the false prophet who's pointing people to Antichrist and encouraging them to worship him. Point of application here, I won't dwell long on it, but I think it bears kind of taking a walk with, who are you pointing people to? And the false prophet is coming, he's pointing everybody to the beast. And what, what are your actions, what are your words, the way you live your life? Who are you pointing people to? Man, something, something really just to take a walk with there. Verse 14, we continue, we're looking at this false prophet, it says, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And so, this image and the demand that everybody worship it—it's kind of reminiscent of a story we read about in Daniel's, uh, in the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter three. You'll recall Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're commanded to worship this image. They refuse, and they get thrown in the fiery furnace. Jesus shows up with up in the fiery furnace with them there, you know, and, and they're delivered out of it. And like them in the tribulation period. And a large segment of the Jewish believers are going to choose to to rebel against this command to worship this image that has been erected. They won't do it. And, And some of them, many of them are going to be killed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were protected. But in the days of the tribulation, many of these, Jew- these tribulation uh, converted Jews, completed Jews, they're going to be killed for refusing to worship this image. Now, others are going to be saved. They're going to flee into the rock city of Petra, as we looked at that earlier in a previous chapter. But you know what makes this demand to worship this image uh, of Antichrist even all the more egregious is that this image is erected in the temple. Paul said this to the Thessalonians. He said, Let no one deceive you by any means for that day, speaking of Jesus' second coming. He says, It's not going to come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, it says here that he kills everybody who's not going to worship this, this image of the beast. Now, how do you keep track of that worldwide? I mean, how do you possibly keep track of who actually is worshiping this image and who isn't worshiping this image? Well, it tells us here, verse 16, says, he causes all, still speaking of, of the false prophet, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the, or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. And so we're all paying attention here, right? Number 666. Very intriguing part of the text. Now, we understand, and recently this, this, you know, you might think previous to this, like how, you know, is this an, a tattoo, an actual tattoo, and how can they possibly keep track of, track of that? And now we know with our modern technology, you know, they've got, they've got, you know, RFID chips, you know, the radio frequency identifier chips that's in clothing that you buy and so on. And there are, there are thousands. Brenda and I recently saw it was a legit news story. It wasn't one of those fake news stories. It was legit. Um, and they were talking about the the radio frequency devices that they're injecting under people's skins. Thousands and thousands of people on the earth today have these devices. Um, and some companies require them and so on, and it's being touted as this great thing that, you know, provides all this information. It, it removes the possibility of identity theft because it's you. It's in your body. They can track you if, you know, you're a child and you get stolen or if somebody, you know, whatever it is. It's just, so we understand how this could technically uh, be possible. Um, again, yet another counterfeit. Why? Well, I mean, think about it. God, what does He do with believers? He seals us with His Holy Spirit. So what do we have here? We've got God's false prophet, Satan's counterfeit spirit, right? He's sealing people with the mark of the beast. So again, just this other counterfeiting thing. Now, lots of speculation about the number because the number, 666, it's indicative, it's the number of the beast, right? It tells us it's the number of a man, but it's like everybody wants to know who's 666. Now, there's different equations and and theories that people have. One of the theories is that there's this this system, it's called uh, Gematria, where where the letters have a number value that's assigned to them. And so what they'll do is they'll take people's names and the corresponding numbers that's assigned to the letter in their name and they'll add it up to see if it adds up to 666. And there have been some famous people that people have asserted have had the number 666 in their name. Um, Henry Kissinger, supposedly his name added up to 666. Adolf Hitler, his name added up to 666. Now, none of, neither of those is true as far as I can tell. Now, I've searched, you know, a Hebrew Gematria calculator, English Gematria calculator, and, and their names don't add up to 666 as far as I can tell. But do you know whose name does add up to 666? And everybody wants to know now. Everybody's listening in. Seriously, listen to this. This is true. Santa Claus, 666. (laughs) Papa Smurf, 666. Computer actually adds up to 666, which is kind of interesting right now. Just read a story. Elon Musk, who's doing some crazy stuff. He, He owns SpaceX and, you know, the rockets that are... The landing back on the launching pad. Can you imagine that in the 60s? I mean, to see what's going on now. It's fascinating. Elon Musk is working on uh, technology, and, and it's technology associated with smartphones. And, and smartphones, basically, this article that I read asserts that smartphones are, the, are this incredible leap in technology that whoever would have dreamt. Like when I planted our first church, I mean, we didn't even have the internet. I mean, I, I wonder when I put sermons together today, like, what did I do before Google? It's so, it makes things so easy, but, because <clears throat> now I just go great sermons, and I Google then, I print it out, and I just, <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't, I don't do that. <laughs> but but what, they, what this article is talking about is how we, through our smartphones, have access to this incredible wealth of information right there's th- we can at our fingertips access more information than has been available to any other generation and so our intelligence you might you might say and they assert in this article has has grown in- increasingly now now i look at it objectively and i see you know a guy drooling playing candy crush and i go not so much but 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 they're you know they're saying all this information is available now. That information in a smartphone, it's it, it, there's a there's a delay to it, right? It's a, it's it's in our hands, but we have to get it from from our palms into our heads. Well, they're saying the next generation, they're, they're working very diligently on voice recognition technology. Alexa in your house is one of those things. Siri, you know, and it, by the way, it was random. I noticed on my Twitter account that the gal who is the voice of Siri, uh, you know, friended me or whatever you call it on, on Twitter. I'm like, well, that's random, right? So, but voice recognition technology, and they're, they're now also doing video goggles. To where the image goes directly into your eyes. And, and so they're saying that's kind of the next thing, but there's a the thing that's coming after that. And Elon Musk right now is working on a technology where it actually is this, this thing that lies on top of your brain. And the information goes directly into your brain. You become part of the thing. And, and they say, well, this is science fiction, but there's a lot of people who say this actually is a real thing, and, and it can come down the road, which kind of makes this idea of computer being 666, that's just sort of, you know, maybe not so crazy after all. Anyway, what is 666? You know, some, some people are talking about Gematria. Some people speculate that it corresponds to an s- actual seat number in the EU that in the EU parliament that the person who sits in number 666 is the Antichrist. And there was a lot of sensationalism when for so many years the seat was empty. It wasn't occupied. And everybody was like, oh, who's it going to be? And somebody, I think, accurately points out, they go, look, an underling is going to sit there. The the, the guy who's who's the actual, you know, beast who has the number 666, it ain't going to be that guy, you know. So here's the fact. We don't know. And the thing is, in all likelihood, we'll never know who is going to be white because we're going to be raptured. And, and the, the, the thing is, this, this text is written, it's important to God to write this out, but he's writing here, to tri- the, the information is for the tribulation saints. Here is wisdom, he says, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. So he's going to have a beast. It's the number of a man, his number is 666. So the, the actual beast probably will in some way have this number and, and that people will be able to figure it out, but, but we're not going to be able to figure it out. But here's what we do know. It correlates to a number of a man. And, and the idea, the number six, is the number biblically that it's associated with mankind. And it's repeated three times. So basically what God wants us to understand, look, this correlates to the absolute failure and imperfection of man's rule and man's reign. That's the idea is that the Antichrist is the epitome of the failure of mankind, the failure of the flesh. And see, what God would have for us is rather than have our hands and our heads marked by man's rule, God says, listen, it's his word that must be in our hearts, that must be on our hands, that must be on our heads listen to what God says in Deuteronomy he says commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these words of mine tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders you'll recall the story with Jesus I'll close with this In, in Matthew 22 people come to Jesus and they say hey is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not and what does Jesus do he says well give me a coin who's got a coin And they they pull out a coin, and he asks the question, he says, whose image is on this coin, and whose inscription? And they tell him, well, it's Caesar's. And he says this, he says, render to Caesar what's Caesar's, and render what belongs to God, render to God what's God's. Now, that raises a question that they should have asked next, but they didn't ask this next question. What they should have asked next is, what belongs to God? What belongs to God? Because the, the first question is, what belongs to Caesar? They should have said, what belongs to God? And the answer to that question would have been, well, whose inscription and whose image is on you? Whose image and whose inscription is on you? See, that's the question that they're going to have to answer in the tribulation. And today, here, right now, that's the question we got to answer. Whose image is on you? Whose inscription is on you. Don't fall for the counterfeit.